Regardless of what is going on, you are still worthy of praise. You're still worthy of all of the glory in good times and bad times. Whether we're up or whether we're down or whether we're somewhere in between. You are God and you are holy. You reign on high. You are sovereign. And God, we bring you glory and honor as best as we know how through our worship and through our audible praise this morning. God, we bring as best that we know how our adoration of you, declaring who you are, even from broken lips and broken lives, God. We bring the very best that we have in this moment to affirm for ourselves, God, but in your presence, that you are God and that you are good and that you are holy. You sit above it all, God. God, we thank you. We thank you for being our God. We thank you for being our Father. We thank you for being our protector. We thank you for being the lover of our souls. We thank you for making a way for us. We thank you for caring about us more than we care about ourselves. We thank you, God, that you do not see us as incomplete, Lord, but you see us as complete. God for this love that we cannot comprehend that demands nothing of us other than to receive it we're thankful this morning God we're thankful this morning Lord because we are not people without hope we're thankful this morning God because this that we see before us is not the total sum of things it's not the end thank you Lord with us every step of the way you can number the very hairs on our head so you know clearly what concerns us you see what's down the street when we don't and I am thankful that I have a God that I serve a God that I have a father in heaven who is concerned about me There's no better place for us to be. There's no other way that we should turn but toward you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord.
all do know that he's worthy, right? Yeah. You do understand that. And I know I can be very repetitious at times. Thank you. It's a reminder. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Because I have to tell myself over as much as I need. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Who God is. I have to tell myself, remind myself who God is. So whatever troubles or anything that comes alone I have to remind myself that God is above it all yeah. that he is all powerful as, as Aaron said earlier but I have to remind myself because the world and the cares and the trials of life would, would try to block those things out right I have to remind myself that God loves me. That God loves me. And I heard someone say, He's into me. <laughs> He's into me. Amen. And I remind myself so that I do not forget who I am. Yeah. Amen? I remind myself so I do not forget that I am a child of the Most High. I remind myself so that I do not forget I have been redeemed. I have been saved, set free. Yes. And this ain't the end. Yeah. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. I have to remind myself that though we have these momentary trials, this ain't the end. This is only a blip in the journey. Come on. This is only a little bump in the road. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard yes. all that God has Come prepared on. for the Son of Man. Scripture says there is no good thing that He will withhold from us. Come on. This is only the Word. Yeah. <laughs> so when the darkness seems to overwhelm, I remind myself. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, yes, yes. I'm a king's kid. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Amen. Amen. But more importantly, I'm reminded, I remind myself that God is able. But even if he doesn't, he's still able. Yes, he is. He's still God. He's still king. He's still Lord of Lord. He is still sovereign. Whether he does it or not does not change who he is. And I'm grateful for that. So even if he don't change my circumstance, even if he don't change my situation, I still can go to him and say, God, I still can go to him and shout God. I still can go to him and believe him and believe he is who he says he is. I still have confidence. I still believe. Yes. 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 And I have to remind myself of that. I have to remind myself of that. Because I forget sometimes. I have to check myself. Amen? Amen? Amen. People of God said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Put your hands together. Give God glory and honor.
Hallelujah. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Man, God is good. Joy to you this morning, River City family, on this third Sunday in Advent. I'm Beverly Hancock, and um, I invite you to stand and join me in the reading of Scripture this morning. It's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palace. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, River City. Good morning, good morning. It is seriously such a joy to be with you all here today in adult service. Um, it's just a sweet, sweet spirit in this space. But really, I, um, I have missed being here. I do love being with our kids in Kid City. Um, if you don't know our children, we have some amazingly creative and intelligent and spunky young ones in our congregation. And it is really a joy to be with them as well. So actually today, Pastor Daniel and I have switched, and for the first time ever, he is teaching Kid City, our first to fifth graders. So I told him, you know, I said, like, I've seen you chase kids, I've seen you hold kids upside down, I've seen you make them cry, make them laugh, but I've never seen you actually teach a classroom of kids. So say a prayer <laughs> for our children back there. Um, Okay, so before we jump in, um, I'm gonna actually build on how Elder Keith closed us out with uh, building a little bit more on our financial update. So if we could have that first slide come up, is that Ken? Thank you. Um, so as Pastor Daniel shared last week, um, you know, this is, this is kind of a breakdown of all our expenses for the year and kind of where they go towards. And so what you'll see with a combination of, you know, our church ministries and staff and our administration, for a church our size in terms of our Sunday congregation, we actually are really close to bringing in the amount of money that's needed for our Sunday service. Um, and... Yeah, and just, I just want to emphasize, too, that we have so many people who are already continuously giving so sacrificially <clears throat> to the needs of our church, and so thank you, thank you. Um, so, but the reality is a Sunday congregation our size doesn't need a building like this, this huge. We don't need the lot and the warehouse next door. Um, but 
we at River City believe that church, it doesn't just happen on Sundays. It happens throughout the week, and it happens rooted in a specific place and in a particular neighborhood. And we have felt as a church carried right here to West Humboldt Park, to this particular neighborhood. And so we have intentionally stretched above and beyond to open a safe space for our youth and our community to directly push back against the violent systems of race and poverty. This is part of who we are. And it costs money to do that. It costs money to open our church space and have a warm, bright, safe environment to invite our children into. Um, and so that's kind of the reality of where we're at, is that the amount of money we still need to raise for the rest of this year is that above and beyond that is part of who we are as a church congregation and as we see our mission and neighborhood development. So if we move to the next slide, just real quickly, again, we've already received $330,000 throughout this year. That is no small amount of money. Praise God and thank you all who have given. Um, but the gap remaining is still $200,000 as of December 1st. But I'm very excited to report to you all if we go to our next slide. Um, just since December 1st, we've had over $37,000 um, be given to our church. Um, so yes, praise God, praise God. Um, that, you know, that brings us 19% of the way. We still have a ways to go, but I am just so encouraged and so blessed by those who are contributing. And it's those who are currently here, part of our River City community, and it's also those who have been a part of our community at various points in time over the past 19 years. And that's just a beautiful thing that we have River City alumni all across the world, really, who are giving to the mission of our church. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Um, as we move forward. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord, um, give us this day our daily bread. I pray that for us as a church community. I pray that for us financially and all the material resources and everything that's needed um, for us to be who you have called us to be. And we hold our arms open, our hands open in a posture of just trust and submission and joy even, believing that you will give us what we need, no more and no less, to be who we are and who you have called us to be. And I pray that same prayer for us. Give us this day our daily bread um, as we continue in a spirit of worship. Lord, I pray that you would nurture us as you do. You would care for us as we dive into the gift of your holy scripture, Lord, today in Matthew 11. So for myself, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I pray that this time would be a blessing to everyone here in person and those online as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. So as um, Beverly mentioned, and Beverly, thank you for your reading of, of the scripture, we are now in the third Sunday of Advent, the beginning season of the church calendar, um, where we remember and prepare for the arrival of Christ Jesus. So if you're just joining us, welcome, or maybe if it's been a minute since you've been here, um, this season we are following the gospel portion of the common lectionary, which this year brings us through the gospel of Matthew. And so the scripture pastors, as we move through Matthew, don't go in chronological order, but instead follow the rhythms of the church calendar. So today we are in Matthew chapter 11. And this is an amazing and intense passage. Here we encounter John the Baptist asking a really big question of Jesus. Are you actually the Messiah? 
And so by this point, John the Baptist is already seen as a powerful prophet. He has dedicated his life to calling for repentance and preparing the way for the Messiah. But then he's imprisoned by Herod for essentially calling him out. And now as he sits in prison, John is battling some extreme doubt as he awaits his impending execution. John has reached the point where he publicly questions the very identity of Jesus. And then Jesus gives his response to John in front of the masses. So what is the Advent message for us here? In some ways, it's really clear. Jesus tells us who he is, and it's a beautiful description drawing from a prophecy of Isaiah. But some parts of it weren't very clear to me at first. Advent is about preparation, about waiting, about the hope, love, joy, and peace that comes with the arrival of Christ. But in this passage that we just read, there's this uncomfortable situation where Jesus has already arrived, he's there in the flesh, and John the Baptist is questioning whether this Jesus really is the Messiah. And it's kind of understandable, right? John's in prison, he's awaiting execution, and he's most likely wondering, how can this possibly be what the arrival of Christ, what the kingdom of heaven looks like? The waiting that John is subjected to is not the type of waiting we typically associate with Advent. So even though it might not have been the easiest way to do it, um, I felt led to lean into this, this discomfort, to lean into the injustice and even the potential for despair that we see in this passage. If we look at this passage through John the Baptist, or if we look at Advent through John the Baptist's perspective. So I wondered, how does John the Baptist's unique life and challenging circumstances unveil an Advent message for us today? So I think I needed to start with this question because my heart was yearning for an Advent message that didn't gloss over hard truths. And there are a lot of hard truths we are facing right now, here at the close of 2022. It's incredible. Um, we've been through a lot as a collective, as a society, over these past few years. We thought the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery had sparked some kind of real movement toward real change and real dismantling of anti-blackness. We thought that maybe battling a common foe in the form of the coronavirus might demonstrate some kind of change in heart of people toward the common good. We thought that women had fought long enough and hard enough to overcome misogyny and patriarchy. But sometimes it feels like there hasn't been any progress. White male supremacy just continues to evolve and infect in different ways. Social media and tools that were initially intended to build community are instead weaponized to further incite violence. And succumbing to numbness or distraction in the face of all of this is definitely a very real temptation. But if we allow ourselves to feel Many of us are grieving losses, longing for change, and all the while trying not to collapse under the weight of various very real burdens on our lives. So maybe John's situation in this passage where he's held captive by imperial forces, where he's longing for change and where he is struggling with doubts, actually somewhat reflects our collective societal life and even our personal lives. And if this is the case, then again, I wonder, what is Advent to an imprisoned John the Baptist and to us? 
So this is a massive question. I recognize there is no way we can answer it in its entirety today. But for today, as I think about John the Baptist's harsh reality in this passage and what Advent means as he's mired in this doubt and questioning Jesus, I'd like to offer us one possibility, one idea. And as a disclaimer, it's an idea that might feel like a weird or odd place to start, and I'll own that. And so I'm also kind of asking you to be patient and journey with me as we kind of explore um, this possibility. Okay, so with that, here's the big idea. I'd offer to you that really contending with the meaning of Advent, the arrival of Christ through the eyes of John the Baptist, actually challenges our notion of time itself. Advent at its core is all about time. It's a remembrance of the past arrival of Jesus of Nazareth over 2,000 years ago. And Advent is also a looking ahead to the future arrival of Christ through the second coming. But where does that leave John, who is right there with Jesus, the already arrived Christ, and yet is imprisoned with little hope of making it out? The Advent of Christ is not in past tense for John. And so our understanding of time seems to be really important in how we understand the gift of Advent. I think we often think of time in a linear way. There's the past, hard stop. There's the present, hard stop. And then there's the future. Um, can we bring up that, that first slide with just the, the line graph? Thank you. Um, so this is a really basic image. But I'm just using this to suggest that our culture is really focused, fixated even, on linear time. And by linear, I mean the idea of a straight line from point A to point B. As time passes, you move to the right. Oh, this is the right. Um, and something else is also continuing to change, whatever is on that vertical. Is that the x-axis or the y-axis? I don't remember. Whatever. <laughs> um, and then the next line will connect you from point B to point C as more time moves on. Um, and you know, for purposes of today's visual, made-up visual, we'll just call that progress. Um, and so, I'd suggest that we're conditioned to think of our lives in this way. We start down here, the bottom left-hand corner of the graph, um, as a child. And as a child, we don't yet know the ways of the world. Not much time has passed. We haven't yet developed the skills and experiences that we need to succeed. But we keep developing and progressing. And as time passes, we grow older and we enter adulthood. And as more time passes, we're expected to still kind of keep making our way up this linear path. And when we think of time in this way, our minds demand constant progress from ourselves and from others. And that could mean a number of things. It could be progress in our work, progress in building our families, progress in ministry. And with this mindset, we can hardly bear it when it feels like we're stepping backward or being pushed sideways, even if it's caused by something outside of our control. Because our culture says you have to set a goal, cast a vision, and then do everything in your power to keep moving on that straight line towards that goal. So again, this line graph is just an overly simplistic, very basic illustration of a common way of thinking. And I'm definitely not saying this captures everything. 
but I am hoping to draw our attention to the ways our minds can sometimes apply the same idea of linear time to our faith journeys as well, even though this isn't really a biblical idea. It's a cultural, cultural one that may be created more by whiteness and capitalism than by anything else. And this overemphasis on linear time in our life journeys can often entrap us into some harmful patterns. Um, it might cause us to make unrealistic demands of ourselves that lead to a sense of defeatedness or hopelessness when we don't meet our own expectations within a, a certain amount of time. Linear time might entrap us into a further enclosed individualism that disconnects us from other people as we pursue our isolated goals on our own predetermined timelines. And linear time combined with another defining aspect of our culture, scarcity, might lead to the ongoing belief that there is never going to be enough time and leave us feeling unbearable anxiety. But what if time is not actually as linear as we might think? Can we go to the next slide? Thanks, Ken. What if time looks like this? Um, this is a visual from the world of quantum physics or quantum mechanics, which is admittedly so far outside of my zone, but I'm still drawn to dip my toe into its waters because I find it really fascinating and to think about this from a theological perspective. And I really love this image. I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it's some kind of visual depiction of like subatomic particles, like zooming around and I don't know, just some really cool stuff at a microscopic level. Um, and so you'll see that there's, there's not a single straight line here. Um, we have, you know, ellipses and curves and radiating spheres, some really, really beautiful and interesting things. Um, but I put this up here, not just because it's a pretty picture, even though it is. What I love about quantum mechanics is its notion of entanglement. Now, entanglement describes an intrinsic connection between things that we might not otherwise think would be connected just take like 60 seconds to describe this a little bit. So scientists have found that subatomic particles like electrons or photons, when they're sent zooming off into space, are actually interconnected together. They still relate to one another and affect one another even when they're separated by vast, vast amounts of space. So when one particle does one thing, it somehow affects the other even though they're nowhere near each other. So entanglement is this idea of connectedness as part of an inseparable whole. And so to me, this completely connects back to my theology and my faith, because it tells me that sometimes my way of thinking is too limited to capture the fullness of God's created reality. There's no room for this idea of entanglement within traditional ways of thinking. But what if, there is a whole lot more connectedness among all things and even more connectedness and relationality across time itself. Quantum entanglement might even apply to time, as some scientists are theorizing right now, with the idea of time entanglement. This opens the possibility that future, past, and present are somehow all a part of a mysterious and inseparable whole. My only point here is that it's possible that time itself might not actually be as linear as it seems. So 
all I'm trying to surface here is that there may be a whole lot more mystery to time than we typically allow ourselves to realize. And the ways that we like to categorize past, present, and future as distinct and totally separate periods of time might need to be shaken up a little bit for the sake of our faith. What if those lines in time aren't as clear as we once thought they were? This mystery and disorientation of time is what it brings me back to Advent. The season of Advent actually points us to the mystery of time if we open ourselves to see it that way. Christ has arrived. Christ is arriving, and Christ will arrive again. It is all true, all at the same time. So perhaps, in some ways, time is entangled together in Christ and because of Christ. And this isn't a totally far-fetched idea. I'm not the only one who came up with this, because I think we hear hints of this in Scripture through another John, the Apostle John, in John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John here also wants to expand our horizons of time. And even though the Word became flesh and entered creation at a particular time and in a particular place, the Word has always been and always will be. That same Word, Christ our Lord, is coming again, when God will wipe every tear from our eyes, when death will be no more, and all mourning and pain will pass away with the current order of things. The Advent of Christ is past. The advent of Christ is future, and that same word is here with us right now through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in this space, here right now. The advent of Christ is present. Whew, all right. Um, so, you know, again, this exploration that we've been on, and thank you for hanging with me. I appreciate it a lot. Um, it all started with John the Baptist, right? So let's go back to John. I think I'd suggest that his life highlights the mystery of entangled time and Advent maybe more than anyone else in the scriptures. John was with Jesus at the very beginning when Jesus first arrived in the flesh. Luke writes that Elizabeth felt John leap in her womb when a pregnant Mary came to her. Luke hints that John the Baptist knew Jesus as Messiah even before they entered the world. Isn't that amazing? John was there at the initial arrival of Jesus the Christ. He was right there, right at the beginning. And then we learn in the Gospels that John then lived out his calling as a prophet, baptizing in the Jordan River and preparing the way for a coming one who would usher in the kingdom of heaven. The whole, John's life, his life's work was fully centered on the present arriving of Christ. And yet, when we encounter John here in today's passage, John is in prison, about to be executed, at the exact same time Jesus was there preaching, teaching, and healing. Christ was arriving right then and there with John, yet the kingdom of heaven had still not yet fully arrived. John's life reflects the mystery of time and the blurred lines between the past, present, and future arrival of God. Okay, so, you know, I have this feeling 
because this is kind of how my mind works and now I've dragged you all into the way that my mind works. But I feel like I've taken us all into like the far reaches of the cosmos, maybe into other galaxies, and I fully recognize that we have to come back to Earth. So now's our time to come back to Earth. So I'd like to turn back to our scripture and ask a you know, question for us. If this is true, what might this mean for us? What might change for us if we open ourselves to the mystery of time and to the possibility that time is not a straight line, but is instead an interconnected and inseparable whole. So again, turning back to our passage, and maybe we can put the first slide up there, starting with verse two. Um, I wanna start by recognizing that this mystery of Christ's arrival, perpetual arriving, and future arrival is a lot to hold. And I think we see that right here in this passage with John the Baptist in his uncertainty. Even the greatest prophet who ever lived, who was right there with Jesus in the flesh, struggled with doubt. If John, maybe, if John could have seen and held this vast mystery of Christ's arrival across the entirety of time, he might have been in great shape. He might not have felt the need to ask this question. But John was human, just like the rest of us. It can be hard to open ourselves to the mystery of who God is when we're facing such times of stress and despair as John was during this time. And so I think the first application for us as we open ourselves to this mystery of Advent time is to take comfort in what Jesus shows us about himself right here in this passage, that God not only tolerates our doubt and uncertainty, but perhaps expects it and even welcomes it. We see this in this passage and how Jesus responds to John the Baptist's big question here. Again, John sends his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And this is a bold and audacious move on his part. This is a big question. He's basically sent his disciples to question the very identity of Jesus, not just in a private conversation, but in front of all the masses. And then Jesus, instead of you know, reacting to what might see as the audacity of John's question, actually reinforces the high esteem he holds for John the Baptist. Um, if we actually could skip to the slide with verse 11 on it at the very end. Um, I'm not sure you could sing any higher praise of someone than Jesus does here in verse 11. He says, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's some high praises. Jesus does not shame John for his doubt. He doesn't even seem to be caught off guard by it. Because I'd imagine Jesus knows that John's doubt and uncertainty is not unfounded in this moment. Because right now, he is up against massive opposition in the form of the imperial ruler, Herod. And Jesus embraces John in his doubt and even reinforces John's own identity as a great prophet sent by God. If we think back to that simple line graph, through the assumptions of linear time, we might look at John at this point in time and think he's massively regressed. He's gone backwards. It's like John had made it up to point C in terms of the progress of his faith over time. And now with this big question that he hurls at Jesus, it's like he's regressed all the way back to point A. 
But John's uncertainty in that moment of time does not define the fullness of who he is. Jesus affirms this with so much compassion and grace. I believe Jesus sees the whole of John, the entirety of his life and his belovedness placed into this even bigger context of the eternal story of God. Jesus is not bound by linear time. He doesn't deliver a message back to John's disciples that says something like, but John, you've come so far. How could you ask this now? John is the only one, again, who knew Jesus as Messiah while he was still in the womb. John is the only one who baptized Jesus and bore witness to the voice of God speaking over him. And even John was not able to hold the mystery of entangled time of Christ's past, present, and future arrival. When John faced opposition, he doubted. And I believe that Jesus knows that we too will face doubt, sometimes extreme doubt. And, but Jesus holds us in that with such love and such compassion. But even as Jesus extends so much grace to John in his uncertainty, he also delivers a call to action, or more like a call to pay attention. Um, if we can jump to verses four to five, so I'm going all over the place here. Um, Jesus replied, I'm reading starting in verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think here we see that the res in response to John's question about the very identity of Jesus, it's like Jesus says, you want to know who I am? You can hear and see. In other words, your body will tell you who I am if you pay attention. And what is it that John's disciples are to pay attention to? Jesus focuses their attention on acts of healing, of restoration, of new life, of justice for the poor. Jesus says that these miracles of restoration and justice aren't just things that he does. This is who he is. This is the very identity of Jesus. I think this tells us that the advent of Christ, the arriving of Christ, is a present and ongoing reality. God with us, Emmanuel, is moving, is healing, is restoring. Miraculous things happen through the perpetual arriving of Christ. And Jesus invites John's disciples to pay attention to this. John's disciples can use their own eyes and ears, their own experiences, to encounter the living Christ in their midst. So I'd offer to us today that Jesus is also inviting us to pay attention. As we pay attention, we will see and hear the present arriving of Christ, likely in places we don't expect. Wherever there is movement and action that brings forth healing and restoration and justice, that is God with us. And just as it was with Jesus, the Messiah, this healing and restoration will likely happen at a small scale through our encounters with others, eye to eye, face to face, and through our relationships. We might be tempted to associate the work of the Messiah with big, high-impact, scalable works of justice. And sometimes that might happen. 
but not always. I wonder if John the Baptist might have been tempted by that assumption too. Because Jesus was healing some people, but there were still so many who could not see, who could not hear, who still had leprosy. I'd imagine this was part of John's doubt, that he expected a certain level of impact or a certain type of change. And he hoped also, of course, that Messiah would free him from imperial imprisonment. He was looking for types of change that he was not seeing in the way he was looking at Jesus. John might have expected that because time had passed, because Jesus had been in ministry for a little while now, that there might be greater impact from Jesus' ministry if he really was the Messiah. And this is where I'd like to circle back to the starting question I've been wrestling with about what Advent, the arrival of Christ, might have meant to John the Baptist and what it might mean for us when it often feels like the world is on fire. And this is a massive question with no single answer, but it has been a liberating gift to me to recognize that part of the answer might be tied to a necessary change in perspective on my part. A lot changes when I am mindful of this mystery of entangled time, the mystery of Advent time. The mystery of Advent time frees me from placing my demands of linear time and constant progress onto God. The mystery of Advent time allows me to see that any single encounter of healing or any single encounter of justice is not just, a it's not just an isolated event on its own. It is part of an inseparable greater whole of God's time. And when we encounter others um, and Jesus is there, anytime we encounter others, and Jesus is there, there will be healing, there will be restoration, and there will be justice, because again, that's who Jesus is. I believe Jesus is inviting us to pay attention and to change our perspective, because even those small moments are holy and sacred moments, when we can see that everything is tied up in this interconnected mystery of Advent time. It might be an unexpected conversation, or a meeting with a friend, or one of those moments when you just look at a loved one, maybe a child, and you're just overwhelmed with love for them. These are healing moments that have so much significance. And maybe when we start to pay attention to the ongoing present arriving of Christ during these moments and through these encounters, we might start to see Jesus in more and more places and join Jesus in new and perhaps unexpected ways in the healing and justice work that is the very identity of our God. And so I'll close with this. My prayer for us is that by opening ourselves to the mystery of time, we might experience the wonder, the joy, and the hope of Advent in new ways in this season. As we are attentive to the ongoing arriving of Christ happening every single day in our daily lives, and through our encounters. Maybe the mystery of Advent time leads us to slow down during this season and really connect with the possibility of divine encounter with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family, and even those we encounter on the bus or at the store. Because true justice and restoration happens eye to eye and face to face. Maybe the mystery of Advent time 
opens a new sense of wonder and awe as God arrives exactly how we need, even if it's in small and unexpected ways. Because those seemingly small gifts of grace actually connect us to an eternal Christ who was and is and is to come. And as we are attentive and responsive to the advent of Christ in the small things, who knows where the Spirit of God might take us. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord in my inmost being. Lord, we praise you for who you are. God, we thank you that you are a God of love, that we can always trust in your love, that that love is an anchor for us. When even things like time, things we think are totally concrete and stable, might not actually be what, I, what they seem, we know that you are always love, God. You are always with us. So during this Advent season, would you prepare us, Lord, prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for the arrival of Christ and the arriving in present tense of Christ. May we pay attention even to those small things, oh God, where you are working, where you are in our midst. And I pray that as you prepare our hearts and our minds, we might experience a new sense of wonder, a new sense of awe, a new sense of joy, as we see you and know you and feel and experience your love, even in the small things. So God, as we turn now to worship, um, yeah, Lord, I just pray, I just had this vision of just open hands, open arms. Lord, may we come to you with that posture and receive what you have for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we go forth from this place, may the triune God whose love anchors us completely um, in God's self, may we open up, may, may that same God open our eyes with wonder to see the present arriving of Christ right here, right now in our very midst. Amen. Go in peace.